are listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Jersey Guys podcast. This is Mark Ballow. I'm here with my co-host, Tom Coyne. Today, we've got special guest Anthony Quarter from the band Tora Tora. Uh, everybody remembers uh, Walking Shoes from 1989, the debut album, Surprise Attack. Uh, the band released another album in 1992, Wild America, and has also released in 2011 the shelved album Revolution Day. So we talk about that and more. Uh, so let's get right into this interview with Anthony Quarter. Hey, everybody. Mark from the Jersey Guys podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Tom Coyne. Today, we've got special guest Anthony Quarter from Tora Tora. Welcome, Anthony. Hey, guys. What's happening? I'm so happy to talk to you. The Jersey Guys podcast. Man, I'm excited to be here to talk to you guys. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for joining us and taking some time tonight. Um, I guess let's uh, let's jump right into it. And, uh, you know, so what's going on with Tora Tora today? Man, we're thrilled, actually. We're actually back out getting uh active again we uh i just saw the guys this past weekend did our uh first rehearsal and uh, we did a private event uh over the weekend and cranked up it was the first time since last year you know we kind of took a, a hiatus uh we tiptoed around a little bit during covid and uh the last time we were together was back in september believe it or not of 21 we went up to um hinkley minnesota to the Grand Casino. There's a place up there, um, an event called Rock Timber. And uh, it's been an established festival event for quite a few years. And it was one that was on our bucket list. We hadn't been up that way in quite a while. So it was awesome. Uh, it was a very uh, different experience for us because we went in. It was one of the only shows we did last year. And we went in. It was right when people started kind of opening back up again. And uh, I guess we just wanted to kind of see what it felt like to go out and do the event. It was outdoors, and we flew together, uh, stayed at a hotel together. We drove straight into the show, uh, jumped back in the car, and drove back to the airport, which uh, we were all on a thread together. We were thrilled to be playing and to see each other because we were like everybody else. The pandemic had made us nutty and miss each other a lot, and um, and we really wanted to see the crowd. You know, we wanted to go check on everybody, and uh, that was one of the things that kind of that tipped us off in September. Uh, we kind of were all on a text together and we said, Hey, let's just see how everybody feels when you get back a couple of days, you know, live with it for a minute. And then let's talk to each other on this thread. And, you know, we went in and, um, it was an amazing experience to play. We got to play a new single that had, had come out September 3rd called trip to light. Fantastic. And we got to do it at the festival, but we didn't get to interact with the audience very much. We didn't get to do the meet and greet, the VIP kind of thing. Um, so, and that's a big draw for us is to get to interact with the audience and see everybody. And we want to hug them and talk to them and catch up. You know, it's been quite a while uh, before bastards of bill came out in 2019. It had been a kind of a long period of, of just uh, re-release stuff, out, outtakes and things like that for us. So uh, getting back ramped up, getting out on the road and everything, we wanted to see everybody. So uh, the band said, I think right during that Rock Timber, September time, uh, there was kind of some spikes were going on again, some other surges with, with the COVID thing. So we just said, you know, let's maybe hold back until we could do all the events. And I actually uh, talked to our booking agent and I, I – fulfilled a, a few of those contracts uh just on acoustic it was smaller venues and uh you know the promoters were comfortable they said hey we can keep everybody kind of a safe place and you can come and do play some shows if you're comfortable and so i kind of i did about five or six at the end of last year uh which was fun and we got to do it uh you know to complete our arrangements or whatever but you know it's a lot different doing an acoustic show than it is having us all cranked up through marshals and all that kind of stuff so it's a little bit different experience for the for the crowds and i'm just glad we're all back together now uh, it felt great this past weekend um we have new music coming so last september i guess was trip the light fantastic came out september 3rd 
uh, we had a song drop on New Year's Eve. We surprised everybody called Little Girl Blue. It was kind of a, a tribute to Janis Joplin. Uh, that was our second uh, kind of we're doing singles now, which I guess maybe you guys will talk and address that. And then uh, we have uh, a new single coming out. I just heard the, <laughs> the mix uh, over the weekend. And we're like so excited. We can't wait for this one to come out. Uh, it's really cool. Uh, the story behind it's really cool. So we can't wait to share it. It's a song called Go Where the Love Is. And um, we're thrilled about it. You know, I mean, I think COVID and the pandemic and everything, you know, it affected us all in in different ways. And um I don't know, man. I think we'll have to get down the road away from it to really feel the <laughs> the yeah, effects sure. of of how um, how much it affected all of us. But I, I mean, it really made us think about things that we took for granted. I know it did in in my life personally, with just being around my bandmates and being around our families and all that. You know, my parents are still with me, and they were kind of the people that were, uh, you know, the target at the beginning and we were really worried about them. So we were trying to keep them from traveling and staying safe and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, sure. I don't know. We have a lot of, I, I think I have a lot of things I'm working through lyrically and, and not trying to be heavy all the time, but just things that are just naturally going to come up. Yeah, and uh, sure. this new song is definitely, uh, it, it's kind of focused on, you know, it's focused on home and interacting with each other. And, you know, all, uh, those last three, all kind of every song you do kind of has a, a backstory and something that's inspired you or whatever. And I know the trip to light fantastic was just one that we just said, Hey man, we just want to get together and celebrate. Like this thing is feeling like it's going to come to an end here. We were kind of seeing uh, signs that it was going to slow down and and kind of get to the point where we could just start getting back out and interacting again. So we wanted to celebrate that. Yeah. That was a great song. Oh, thank you, man. And that little girl blue was just, it was inspired man during pandemic I, I watched some things some documentaries and stuff on janice joplin and she was a huge influence on me when i was younger and uh it something just resonated with me on that one and uh, uh keith i just loved the guitar work he did on it it was just really fun i, I kind of had worked it up on acoustic first and, and gave it to him and um and then this new song go where the love is keith had written the riff and everything at the beginning they all kind of come from different places sometimes it's the lyrics sometimes it's music sometimes it's just talking to you guys you know uh, a lot of our music is inspired by our fans, man. I've said it over and over uh, in interviews and on stage and everything is we think about, you know, everybody when we're all together, we're talking about all the good times we're having and meeting and uh, hanging and partying and all that stuff with everybody. And we really don't take that for granted. But um, the the new song, hopefully that's going to be popping out. We're going to have some kind of announcement or some kind of surprise, but you guys are kind of hearing about it first oh, cool. uh, on this just because I'm excited about it. Um, it was just inspired about thinking about what is home, what it means to everybody else. And it could be your family. It could be people that are, you know, thicker than blood, your friends and stuff that have been stayed by your side through thick and thin. And, uh, I just kind of was thinking on that one night, you know, and, uh, the things you gravitate towards that kind of save you, man, when things get dark, you know? And uh, so that kind of inspired that, the, the hook part, the go where the love is, the things that you're really passionate about and crazy about and that you focus on and you know, pull from. So we're super excited about that. And I've kind of been doing a little Sunday night uh, sunset session on Facebook. So I've kind of been, you know, teasing it a little bit that it's coming and it's, it's been a second. It's taken us a while. We do have uh, a lot of music recorded. Uh, we did some, some basic tracks back last summer. It took us about 14 months to see each other, kind of like everybody else. We had played in Denver and, and, uh, in Denver, Colorado, in February of 2020, and like everybody else, we were cruising along, thinking, you know, 2019 we were busier than we'd ever been, and we just thought, you know, hey, we're just going to keep the train rolling, and we're going to run back in and do some recording in March, and hmm. and, and keep the pedal down and do, doing our, you know, weekend warrior kind of stuff. And uh, anyway, I just remember seeing the band and just say, you know, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. We're going to the studio, and uh, there was a small rumbling around that said hey there's this virus thing going on that was kind of in the headlines but not really you were just kind of hearing about it a little bit right yeah i remember that and uh and then i remember you know i remember the day man march 16th when the whole or at least on my side of uh, everything just shut down completely oh yeah and it just definitely. said you know go to the house and and uh you know 
I think I was like everybody else and just thought, hey, this is going to just be a couple of weeks. Right. That's exactly what I told the band. I said, hey, you know what? This is kind of getting crazy. Let's just down the line. I'll see you in March. Yeah. I mean, uh, excuse me. I'll see you in April yeah. and uh, we'll let March go by a couple of weeks. And <laughs> then by April, y'all know what everybody's doing. Yeah. Really. Everybody was at a different, you know, a different universe at that point. But right. anyway, man, with everything that happened, um, it was it was traumatizing. I mean, we had people passing away and stuff, and I don't want to make light of it, but I, I do believe that it made us, it was kind of a wake-up call for a lot of people that we were just kind of cruising around and we took some things for granted. And I think, um, you know, I'm going to use that and take it with me out all this stuff. But we're definitely ready to see everybody and celebrate. It made me think about just how much uh, we enjoy that and and how lucky we are that we're all still together, still the four original guys and and uh, we don't take it for granted that we get to spend time with each other now, yeah. uh, especially now that we're a few waves down the road. <laughs> you right, know? Right, right. Um, and so we still love it, man. We're just still passionate about it. We still love, you know, genuinely, we love just hanging out with each other. We're still friends from a long time ago. And we've been through a lot together. You know, we've been high on the mountain, shouting from the mountaintop and then, you know, through the dark places. But we've always stayed together through all that stuff. So, yeah. you know, it's just kind of strengthened our our friendships and our relationships and stuff. So, and, uh, getting together this weekend, it was just great. It was a good visit. And, you know, it kind of just made us say, okay, yeah, man, we, we're starting to feel like we're ready to ramp back up again and yeah. do some shows. So we may not be quite as busy as we were, you know, in 2019, uh, we're going to kind of ease back into it, but, uh, we definitely want to come see everybody. So, yeah. Well, uh, you talk about, you got a hometown gig coming up right at the end of the month. You're playing the Beale street music festival. Yeah, man. We're so thrilled to be doing this. Um, we played the last time we were there was 2018. Uh, and before that, it had been years. I mean, a long time. We we actually used to go to this thing all the time. And uh, uh, we I think I was lucky. there in 2010 or 2011. I went a couple of years in a row myself. I got to got to see Jerry yeah. Lee Lewis play. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, man. He's he's amazing. Uh, I used to actually run around with his his road manager J W Whitten that oh, lives wow. in in Memphis, and uh, I remember J W took me to the casinos one time. I was little, man. I was probably I don't know early twenties or something, and he took me in to meet Jerry Lee. He was playing, uh, I think it was at Samstown or one of those down there, right out right outside of Memphis. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, <laughs> they had had a flood. Uh, the river had flooded really bad uh, mm -hmm. down at the casino, so they had some temporary trailers and stuff that were in the back for the for the artists that that were playing. And I remember I went in there, and there was a you know there was I don't know twelve fifteen people standing around in this little you know tiny trailer or whatever. And Jerry Lee walked in, and uh, he had on a uh, glittering red. He looked like a red disco ball man. He walked <laughs> in, his shirt was shiny, uh, his jacket. I mean, and I'm not kidding. People always say this uh, about when you meet people that are superstars and stuff. But when he walked in the building, I mean, it was like he sucked the air out of the room. Like every eye went on him. I mean, he was just he had a charisma about him. And yeah. I'll never forget it. He went around the room. He was really polite to everybody. He went around and shook hands and he called everybody killer. Hey, how's it going, killer? You know, when he would talk to you, you know, and I just couldn't believe it. When I looked at him, I was just freaking out. I, I know he probably thought I was like on something or something, but <laughs> it was kind of just taking my, my breath away, you know, and I looked at him and I just remember thinking like of all the history that he had, just what a legacy and, and the chance that I just got to spend a few minutes talking to him just really meant a lot to me. So that was a, a really great memory. And I, he put on a good show at the casino. He he played and he actually had a couple of his band members had sang and played and stuff. So it was it was kind of a, a mix, you know, throughout his his show of his hits and stuff. But it was very entertaining, and he had a uh, he still had a great way with the audience. Got everybody really tickled and involved in the show. So it was it was awesome. Well, that's cool. Now you mentioned but, uh, a few minutes ago, though, um, about how you've been releasing singles. You had a couple late last year. The new one coming out. Um, is it ultimately something you guys are looking to do a full album, or are you just going to stick with the singles route? We are actually doing singles um, because we wondered. We did the full record uh, back in 2019, which was a crazy story. We, um, Patrick, our bass player, had had a health scare back in 2016. Um, he was diagnosed with a very serious, uh, aggressive cancer. He actually had gone on a trip and he fell ill and he went in to the, see his doctor back as soon as he got back from the trip uh, about something else. And it was kind of like, you know, 
guardian angel or whatever you all want to believe that, you know, the universe or God or whatever it was that he went in because the scan that they did, they said, Hey, we found something else. And they said, it's super aggressive, but they go, we're going to grab it and we're going to take care of it. And you're going to make a full recovery. And all you'll have to do is do screen tests, you know, to, to make sure that, you know, we keep an eye on everything, but they said, you're going to, you know, hundred percent, you're going to be fine. And uh, of course it scared us all to death because we've known each other since we were kids, you know, since high school. Sure. And uh, and especially the lifestyles <laughs> that we are living, you know, in the 80s and early 90s and all that stuff. But anyway, uh, anytime when something about your health comes up, you know, it gets kind of serious. But the minute that that he got, um, you know, the, the all clear, he just said, I want to go play, man. He goes, I don't care if it's five people or five thousand or fifty thousand or whatever. He goes, let's just get together and crank up. Oh, and uh, cool. so we jumped on uh, the Monster to Rock cruise, which was an amazing experience. That was back in 2017. And um, Larry Moran, uh, the people that, that put the cruise together, they just do an incredible job. And uh, we were aware of it and we had wanted to do it, but we just hadn't schedule-wise and priority-wise with life and families and kids and all that stuff. It just hadn't been available. The slides weren't available. So we just said, hey, everybody, mark this on your calendar. We're we're going this time and as soon as we did it was <laughs> the most it was such a great trip it was such it was so fun it was the most incredible experience uh we were on there uh with all the fans like the super fans and then all the bands that was, a lot of them we had toured with and we we're friends with that we hadn't seen in forever yeah and uh we just loved it and you know coming off of that uh, experience, uh, we received a message through our social media, through Twitter, actually, uh, uh, from a record label that asked us if we wanted to record some new music. And we just said, hey, man, this must be somebody like smoking something. You know, this is somebody just joking around. Uh, and then we did a little bit of research and stuff, and we realized, hey, man, this is really legit. Somebody from from uh, Frontiers had reached out to us. And uh, it was just the craziest story, man. Uh, they had, uh, for your listeners, hopefully they know about Frontiers, and they followed, oh, sure. you know, tons of bands and all that stuff are on there that we're friends with. And uh, we knew Frontiers through uh, our, we had a friend, Jimmy Jamison, that used to sing for Survivor. You know, sure. he was part of that band. He was based out of Memphis and he had done some solo work with with Frontiers a long time ago. So I, I was familiar with the name, but I just wasn't sure if the contact or whatever was real because it was social media. But anyway, we got a, a, a contact number and they have one U.S. rep, you know, and I think it was actually a New Jersey <laughs> area code which was funny. And uh, so I called it and uh, the guy picked up and I said, Hey, this is Anthony with Tor Tor. And I was going to talk to you about, uh, I got a message from you and he said, well, I'd love to talk to you, but I'm in the middle of moving. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, I definitely want to have the conversation. And he said, I'm kind of unpacking. And I said, well, that's you know amazing. Where'd you move to? And uh, he said, I'm in Nashville. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I said, holy cow. I said, I'm in Nashville, man. I, I said, the band's based out of Memphis, but I've lived here for, you know, 16 years or 17 years or whatever it was. And uh, I said, what part of town are you in? I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee. And it was literally the next exit from my house. Oh, wow. I'm not kidding. Huh. I got in the car and drove over to a coffee shop and met him the same day. Uh, it was a guy named Nick Teeter. Okay. And uh, he was amazing. Uh, we just talked. He told me that, you know, he, he was had listened to our band. He had gone and gotten our records when he was young. And he said, I, we're just reaching out to see if you guys might want to do any record. And it was like the planets had lined up, you know. Yeah. Uh, Patrick was better. We kind of gone out and uh, the monster rock and picked up a few, you know, little one-off dates and the timing just was right. The, the planets lined up. Um, and we said, yeah, we definitely want to do this. And, uh, we were excited because we had talked about recording for a long time, but uh, again, with scheduling families and all that kind of stuff, it just wasn't a priority. We were seeing each other, you know, I still see them all the time, even though we weren't super active, but we were, you know, get together and do some one-offs just to tell some bad stories on each other. And, um, <laughs> Um, but we said, yeah, we want to do it. And so, you know, it gave us a deadline. It gave us a, a project to work on And that. The band just, man, they went crazy. They did so much pre-production. Uh, they knew those songs like upside down and backwards and they knew we were going to be limited on, on our time and our funding and everything. So we just wanted to make the most out of it and really worked hard on that record. And we did let out three songs off of it, but we wondered, uh, as we were touring and, going to see everybody during all of 2019 we're like did they listen to anything else did they hear <laughs> we did uh rose of jericho and silence the sirens and then son of a prodigal son was the one that was the video and you know the son of a prodigal son got a lot of of uh attention and stuff because we shot the video in the same room that we shot walking she's in on bill street so oh, it wow. was 
they're literally the same stage, the same venue. Uh, it's WC Andy's Blues Hall next door to Rum Boogie Cafe on, on Bill Street. And it was super surreal. You know, I walked in, I had my children with me, and I looked at them, and I said, the last time I was on the stage, I was your age. And I was <laughs> shooting the walking shoes video, so it was, it was crazy, you know. Uh, but So people heard that one, and they saw that one because it was kind of out, the video and everything. But we wondered about some of the deep cuts that we'd worked on, you know, like Lights Up the River and uh, Let Us Be One. And, you know, we worked on all those. The title track, Bastards of Bill, I mean, it was a really, really um, – we put a lot of effort and thoughts into it. Not that we, we wouldn't have anyway, but we just wondered, we just said that we're, did anybody even give it a shot and then listen past that song or whatever. Yeah. So this time we were just kind of thinking about it and we said, well, maybe we'll let it one out at a time and just see how it feels. If, if people like it, we'll kind of let it lay there for a minute. And if we put it out and it's not interesting to people, then we'll just follow it up. We're trying to stay, you know, a couple of songs I had as yeah. far as production and all that kind of stuff. But uh, sorry, I know that was a long-winded answer. <laughs> no, no but, problem. But, but to tell you, I was wanting to kind of explain it because a lot of people ask us that on social media. They're like, hey, man, when's the whole project coming and all that? And we would like to do something really special for the the listeners and people that are paying attention at some point, press up something, you know, maybe a vinyl or do something cool. That's a, that's the full project. Yeah. Um, but for the foreseeable future right now, we're, we're kind of weeding through these one at a time. Uh, we did a really different uh, approach on Bastards of Bill. We cut everything live. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys were aware of that. We recorded at a studio, Sam Phillips recording service. And uh, if your listeners don't know who Sam Phillips is, he, uh, was a record producer that ran Sun Studios, so Sun Records out of Memphis, and yes. he found uh, he found some artists like Howlin' Wolf, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis that you mentioned earlier, Roy Orbison, Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley. You know, a few of those names are pretty recognizable. Sure. Uh, and uh, and he made a huge impact. He was he was an entrepreneur. He was a visionary. He was a uh, super smart cat, but with the success that came with Sun, he ended up selling Sun Records to RCA in Nashville. And what he did is, if you've been to Memphis, you see Sun Studios, you know, on yep. Union Avenue as you're driving downtown. Yep, remember it. Yeah. If you drive down that same street that's between uh, Madison and, and Union, if you go to the end of the street, he moved his office and everything. He went on the same street and bought an auto garage gutted it and he built his own studio off the cell the sun and he built the uh the echo chamber which you, you can't take any pictures in there it was designed by him it's got a very unique sound uh he put the two studios in there that are in there uh, it had an upstairs area that was his distribution center and then the third floor was all of his offices and stuff so like the general manager operations he's got a secretary's desk um outside of his door is always shut it's like red shack carpet i mean the whole building is decorated like 1960 it looks like he's just ah. walk in in second it's super cool got like you know those leather white chairs and it's got Look, the, looking like graceland uh, huh <laughs> yeah it's got the ashtray that's you know that's on the stand it's it's kind of circular and skinny and it stands next to the chair where they yeah. were smoking their cigars and stuff but anyway it's the door shut and then next to his office is a bar and it's it's a retro bar it's decorated like 1950 so go in there and make drinks and sit around at the same place it's got you know cigarette burn on the top of it where somebody had too much to drink and left their cigarette sitting there i mean it's just awesome you're sitting there just thinking about the history of the place and uh so we went there to record one of our really good friends a guy named jeff powell that produced the bastard bill record is now there he's the the engineer that runs uh sam's place and um you know, he was kind of like a, a family member to us, man. We grew up with him. He worked on Wild America. He was assistant engineer on that. So we've known him for 25 years or longer, 30 years or something. And he just told us, he said, if you come over here, I'll just make you really comfortable. You can come in. We'll just, it'll be an easy process, you know, because we were kind of panicking, man. We were like, man, we hadn't recorded in a long time. I'm not, you know, the little 20-year-old cat <laughs> from Wild America. It's been a minute. And uh, so we were kind of nervous. We were, weren't sure what their songs were going to sound like. Uh, and we went in with a clean slate, man. We didn't bring any old ideas. We just walked in. We literally did it like we did when we were little kids. We brought a blank poster board and stuck it on the wall at the rehearsal place at, at our drummer's house. And we put the fake title names, you know, the thing mm-hmm. we go, hey, that sounds like a Jimi Hendrix lick or this sounds like a Led Zeppelin song or whatever. And we made our list of songs and then we just checked it off. Hey, the, the arrangements are done. The lyrics done. The solo parts are figured out, you know, all the way through it. We marked this thing down until we we just had it. Uh, we went in and the Sam Phillips recording it, uh, for your listeners. Um, 
everybody from Bob Dylan to one of my favorite influences, Robert Plant, they had all sang at this place, man. Oh, wow. All the people, Dax, and all those uh, really, you know, legacy heritage kind of people. So I was so excited to record there, but we were on a very limited budget. We did the whole project in about eight days. I went that weekends. I would drive from Nashville, and we did basic tracks one you know, one weekend we went back and I sang one weekend. We went back and did overdubs for uh, and and checked vocals and stuff for a weekend. And we mixed for a couple of days and that was it. And okay. we were kind of mixing it as we went along. You know, we cut, I think Johnny and him cut five songs one day and six songs the next day or something like that. So it was really quick. But it also felt like what it would sound like if you came to see us live. You know, the Wild America and Surprise Attack and even the outtake stuff from Revolution Day, there was, you know, a lot of time put into our production and what it sounded like overdubs and all that kind of stuff and this one was just kind of raw i mean we just went in keith we would listen on a take to make sure the drums were okay and while we're listening keith would double his guitar so he'd use a strat on one take and then he put a less ball on the next take and kind of double his guitar track and so it was a super expedited recording process compared to what we were normally do for a long time ago so but it was really fun and so this time when we started doing these singles to kind of go back to answering that question was we just thought about it and we said you know that was really fast and maybe this time we'll just take our time on these tracks you know like we we recorded some of the basic stuff just we need a room that's really great for john's drums so we did that over at uh young avenue sound in memphis and we got you know bass and drums we did i don't know maybe 12 tracks uh, i went down for my birthday and in, in may and then um in july so we did like two sessions and grabbed a bunch of tracks and stuff and so we, then we just said hey let's just pick our you know our favorite ones and start working on them and instead of like doing it all at one time we just said we'll just kind of work on them as we go uh and we got some surprises man off these recording sessions we got uh, a couple of songs that have piano in them and stuff that we've never released anything like that before to our audience so we're kind of excited about it it's going to be really different but i do think it it's it is going to be uh in the context of a full kind of picture of what's going on i think it, it will have that kind of vibe to it as far as like a you know putting a project together so right well that's very cool i mean i'm looking forward to hearing that for sure let's kind of go on to uh the debut album let's kind of work our way backwards a little bit i know tom wanted to talk a little bit about the debut surprise attack so i had a couple of questions i wanted to pepper you with uh and you did okay. men- you did mention howling wolf so i'm, I'm going to start with that because i i hold myself out to be a bit of a, an aficionado on black blues and oh yeah your, your vocal style on the first record, especially, I'm guessing, for a guy that was probably... How old were you when that first record came out? We were probably recording it when I was like 18 or something. Right. Okay. So the, the obvious influences to me when I got this uh, album when it was uh, Plant and some Steven Tyler, but what were your influence deeper than that? Were you influenced by black vocal? Because I, I, I detected even back then a lot of style in your, your vocals that reminded me of like Junior Wells and uh, different black singers from the South. Man, yeah. So just because geographically where we grew up, I think that was kind of ingrained in us being from Memphis. Um, and I, I'm even a little bit further south. I, I grew up down in the Delta, Mississippi. So you know, I guess influence wise and stuff, my family was more of a huge influence on me than I ever realized. And they were kind of like porch pickers, I guess is what we would call them. Mm-hmm. Um, they were never professionals, but they were just kind of, you know, country folks that, you know, just did music. They were kind of poor. They just, you know, to entertain themselves, they listened to radio, they'd listen to Grand Ole Opry and stuff. And then they would listen to records and they, they played music around the house. And as far back as I can remember, in, in my life, music was a part of our family. And I, honestly, I thought everybody was like that. I, n- I never realized it until I got older that I was like, oh, everybody doesn't do this. This is weird. Uh, I would have friends that would come over, you know, when I was a teenager and they go, oh, my God, your family's amazing. They're great. You know, and I go, well, let's go outside and steal the car and smoke a cigarette and get out of here. They do that all the time. Right. You know, I kind of took it for granted. I wasn't really thinking about it, but they listen to everything. Uh, they were very gospel driven so i listened to a lot of that and uh and the blues factor was there because my grandfather was a huge fan of mississippi john hurt so that was mm. he had records he knew him uh and i actually acknowledged that kind of on the wild america record with lay your money down that was uh, that was those were true stories that i heard my whole life about him hanging around john hurt and stuff so they started it but also i was 
kind of backtracking and, and looking and digging around on my own too. I mean, Zeppelin definitely had the influence, you know, on singing and stuff, but also man, where they were getting the music from, I started backtracking and looking and listening to, you know, Elmore James. And, um, I drove the, the band nuts because I would go and get those super eight blues classic, <laughs> you know, cassettes and stuff when we were on the road, I really started getting access to things uh, that I hadn't had before. But I think the blues thing was just a normal, it was something that was really unique for our, us and our sound. I think of all the people that were coming out back then, you know, there was a, a handful of those singers that were super soulful and just had incredible voices. And I think that was something that, that was, that resonated with us and that kind of gave us a, just a little bit of a tinge of a different flavor than what the things that were out. But um, I loved uh, Robert Plant. I loved um, Janis Joplin back then. I would listen to a lot of her. But I also I, we listened to uh, a lot of stacks and soul music and blues. And uh, I mean, I was on Bill Street all the time. And if, if we weren't rehearsing or playing or something, I was down there running around in those little honky tonks listening to people. I got to know the door guys. And, you know, I could sneak in and they'd get me stand by the door if I wasn't old enough to stay, you know, in there. They would say, we'll put you in a standing room only spot and you can stand by the, <laughs> the little merch table or whatever it was that was in there. So those, all those guys, man, there was people up and down the street, you know, that I love. There was a, a soul singer, man, that I got to know really well named James Govan. That he played at Rum Boogie Cafe. It was at 4th and Bill. And uh, he had a full band. He was a, um, he had a horn section, a B3 player. And, th- you know, they would let me get up and sing blues songs with them and stuff, do a slow G or something with them. And, you know, I would just watch them and try to mimic them or imitate, try to emulate some of the things. I mean, we're all inspired by everything around us, you know, as music fans and everything. I think my whole band is, we're like everybody else. We're, we're super fans of music. But you would see them and you just get inspired. You know, you would just see the way they move their vo- vocals around, the riffs that they had and right. stuff. And you go, God, man, I'd give anything if I could sound like that. You and know, the stage presence that. that they had. They had oh, yeah. incredible stage presence. It was big time. And all that, you know, shifted to, man, and I know you're asking more about the first record, but by the second record is when we really got uh, some experience under our belt. Because before Surprise Attack, we had never traveled. We were just a garage band. And we were so blessed and lucky. Uh, there was a studio in town, um, Ardent Studios, is where we recorded all the Tora Tora records up until, you know, Bastards of Bill. And we won a, a Battle of the Bands competition. And part of the prize was you got to record at Ardent. We went in and there was a, a young guy named Paul Eversole that just happened to be the guy on duty that day. Um, he was a, we thought he was older than us. He really wasn't that much further ahead of us. Um, but he just saw something in us when we were in there. We were already recording our own EP. Uh, we were going to do a little cassette. And so we wanted to finish a couple of songs with him. And he actually played piano on Phantom Rider, on, on the first version of Phantom Rider, which was kind of cool because we didn't have anybody playing. We were just a little four-piece rock band, so we thought that was cool. Um, but he just saw something, and he just said, hey, I want to talk to the studio about you know doing some, uh, a production deal with you guys and doing cutting some real tracks where they would kind of – they would put up the money for the recording session and then they would participate if they we got signed into something, you know, they would kind of be a middleman between us and the, the record label or whatever. And, uh, and it was just from that point on, you know, the owner of the studio, John Fry, who's really famous for his work with Big Star. I don't know if your listeners know who Big Star is or if they've listened to those records before, but uh, if they're not familiar with them, uh, just think about that television show, that 70s show, oh, okay. you know, their theme song. Yep. Uh, hanging out down the street. That's a big star song. It's, it's ah. cheap trick singing it, but yeah. that's a big star song. So anyway, John Fry and the people at Ardent were all kind of inspired and stuff by the people overseas in Europe, you know, in the in the Beatles and everything. And so he was mimicking those people. He was a young guy, and uh, he started the studio in his grandmother's sewing room. He moved it to his garage, and then he moved it into town. And you know, back then they were just learning about recording and stuff, man. Uh, if they wanted something to sound a certain way or whatever, they didn't have technology. They had to build it. So he was really good about, um, you know, educating yourself about technology and all that kind of stuff. And he kind of, he kind of became like a father figure to our band. Uh, he was the guy that <laughs> he took us in a room, a conference room, and he drew a big giant circle. Okay. And he stuck a dot in the middle and he said, that dot is you. And this is all the people's going to be digging in your pocket. You know, that was one of those kind of conversations. And so we just said, great, where do we sign up? You know, I mean, we're like, can we go play our music? You know, can we go to New York or LA? This sounds amazing. Yeah. 
but he was a really, really, um, he was an important person in my life, man. He was, he was a mentor to me. And, uh, even after the band, our, our relationship even got, you know, stronger and more important. And when I kind of shifted gears from just being a singer in a band to, you know, being a dad and kind of coming off the road. And I shifted gears and worked for the record labels. I worked in music publishing. You know, I'm a, a professor of entertainment business now. All those things, every one of those steps that I ever did, I talked to him. You know, uh, he passed away a few years ago, and uh, I miss him like crazy. But every decision I ever made in my life, from about the time I was 16 or so, I would talk to him. We would, you know, no matter what kind of crazy stuff he had going on, he would always take a few minutes on the phone call with me to sit down and go, okay, man, let's kind of look at this. What's going on? You know, he's going to help your profile. He's going to help you grow. He's going to help you become better at your business or whatever it was. He he would always take time to talk to me. So he meant a really lot to me, not only to my, my professional career, but just personally, he was just a, he was a great guy. And uh, so it was, it was amazing. And, and to have them, you know, help us with the first record. I mean, we were just a little garage band. I remember us walking in and hearing, so Paul Ebersole was one of the producers. We also had a guy named Joe Hardy. Uh, he had done a, all the ZZ Top records, Afterburner and all that. So he was coming in on a really hot ride, man. He was having a lot of success. And so for somebody like him to join our project, it instantly gave us credibility within the industry and stuff. Uh, and people were wondering, you know, hey, what's going on? What's this going to sound like? Who are these little kids, you know, that he's working with? So how did you get signed to A&M okay. Records? We were signed through Ardent, had done a four-song demo. I know Love's a Bitch was on there. Um, I think Dancing with a Gypsy, Riverside Drive, and Phantom Rider, I think, were the four songs that we shot to the record levels. And we did multiple showcases. For, there was actually a bidding war. There was like six labels. I mean, back in the late 80s and stuff, it was not uncommon for a bunch of record labels to... <laughs> They had a lot of money going around. They were selling, you know, CDs for twenty dollars a pop, and you know it was raining champagne. So they were signing all everybody in the world. But um, man, to be honest with you, that we showcased in our rehearsal space. I don't know if y'all ever heard these stories, but we had a, a rehearsal place that was in the middle of town. It was right next to the Coliseum where we had seen ACDC and Van Halen and all those people growing up. And uh, our guitar player's father had a, a glue business that he was part of, and he had uh, these 55-gallon drums. They were empty, and he stored them in this this warehouse in the middle of town. And we said, hey, can we think we could get access to that to rehearse? And he said, yeah, you know, cool. And we went in, and, man, the first thing that went through our mind was <laughs> we got to throw a party. Yeah. Uh, so we pushed all those things to one end of the warehouse. We put some plywood on top of them. We dropped some black garbage bags off the front. And all of a sudden we had like a hundred foot stage. It was like a hundred feet across. <laughs> we dropped a giant PA in there that his father was nice enough to get us some equipment so we could uh, rehearse. He was thinking he didn't know what we were doing uh, at the time. And we stuck this huge PA in there. Uh, all of a sudden we were little entrepreneurs, man. There was Memphis had an incredible music scene at the time. It had radio stations playing uh local original music they had a few venues that would let you play original but you had to be 21 and up so kids under 21 didn't really have anywhere to go there was like two places in town there was a a, a daisy an old uh, movie theater that would hold about 900 to a thousand people that did original music and they had like you know music nights on tuesday nights and during the week and all that kind of stuff and then headlining people on the weekends but really there wasn't a place where under kid underage kids could go and kind of do things that under age kids want to do you know mm -hmm. so all of a sudden we kind of had a playground and so we said we're we're not going to do this all the time we can't we'll get you know in yeah. trouble but we spaced them out man these parties and we asked um the record companies to come there as our guest uh the, the studio did they said why don't you just watch them in their own habitat i yeah. guess is what it was so uh there was two offices in the front of the building that had a little staircase on it and so upstairs we built a bar like out of two floors and stuff and we made a little vip area for the record company and there was like five or six of them showed up with our, the people from ardent and the soundboard was up there but we put them all up there before the party ever started so they came in early and they're just sitting there and we had all these people show up man we hired uh, two football guys from college to run the door they took took the money we told them we'd give them all the beer they could drink and if anybody got in a fight just to throw them outside so nobody got hurt and uh the place just overflowed people it was so packed people were sitting on their cars they were ordering food they were throwing frisbees it was like i have a movie man i'm not kidding uh, wow. but people would come in they brought their coolers with them they dragged their lawn chairs in 
uh, we stuck big five-gallon buckets of sand around the whole building for people to put their cigarettes in because we were scared they were going to burn the building down. And, and we were in a row of warehouses. So there was all these other businesses around. Um, but they came in there and they saw us. And so at the end of the night, uh, when everybody's gone, we had to go clean the parking lot because these big 18-wheelers would come in. So we'd have to clean, clean up the beer bottles and the pizza boxes and all that stuff. Uh, and so the guy, the A&R guy from A&M, he stayed with us. We put one of those drums in the back of a truck, and he sat down in the bed of the truck, and we ran around the parking lot picking up all the stuff, throwing it away so the trucks could come in. And uh, and we wouldn't get in trouble f- from the, uh, the all the litter and everything. And But anyway, he just was there with us. And we just went to have a conversation with the studio, and we said, hey, man, that guy was genuinely the nicest guy that that came to our show. And uh, he told us later on um, that the, he knew he was going to sign us. He said, when I flew in and I jumped in my rental car, your song was on the radio. And he said, I knew I was going to sign you. There was a local DJ at the time named uh, Malcolm Riker who was on there was two rock stations that and both of them were great to us the whole time we were growing up one was rock 103 and the other one was rock 98 and malcolm worked for rock 98 he started a locals only show that played on friday nights and it was a coveted spot you tried to get it was like an hour long show and everybody was trying to get on there uh because we where we are geographically in memphis we were broadcasting over arkansas mississippi alabama and tennessee so you're kind of reaching a, a huge you know group of demographic of people and uh, he was promoting local only, and he did, you know, jams at the old theater I was telling you about. He'd get a back line and host it and let everybody jump up there and play their songs. You could play three songs or 15 minutes, I think. They did that, like, on a Tuesday night or something. He'd get everybody together, and the place would be packed. Kids would be coming from all over, you know, all over that area uh, because he was broadcasting it. So we ended up – he just supported us, man. He started playing us, like, outside of his local show. We became a, a regional – uh, requested song and we got in this his countdown you know we were the number one requested song or whatever and so that's how it got on the radio and that's where the A&R guy heard it and he just said man when I when I heard it when I got in the car I just knew I was gonna come in and make an offer yeah. yeah and it was just crazy but it was amazing A&M was awesome they had a great heritage of, of rock bands everybody from Humble Pie to Sticks to you know a thousand other things that by the time we were there, they had a lot of success with like in the pop world, Janet Jackson and steam. And of course, when we came along, extreme was happening. Soundgarden was happening. And they were two of the bands. Our A&R guy had participated with, and we, we were his third band. Well, speak, so we speaking of, uh, I just wanted to throw something in there before it leaves my mind. Speaking of humble pie, yeah. there, was a, there yeah. was some Steve Marriott in your vocal style too. Also. Oh my God. I love him, man. He's like a guy, you know, the the male version of Janis Joplin, man. Right. I love it, man. Black Coffee. I love, he does a cover of Ann Peoples, who's an uh, uh, R&B soul singer from Memphis, the I Can't Stand the Rain. If y'all have never heard that, you should tell your listeners and you guys crank that one up. It's He does a great version of that, man. But um, he was just really unique, man. His style, I love the way he rolls off his notes, man. I've, I've tried to, to mimic it. You know, it's hard. He's just so talented. Yeah, he he was but, he uh, had a he lot of soul inspiring. in his voice. That's for sure. Yeah, he was one, so definitely somebody I listen to a lot. I, I really think a lot of him. And that that music all still stands the test of time, man. I mean, they were just raw talent. You know, I mean, it's just undeniable. Well, so that album, uh, "Rocking the Fillmore," was one of the, I yeah, might have, one of the top five live albums, in my opinion, of all time. Yes, man. I love that. I don't need no doctor. God, I love that song. Frampton shredding away on it. Yeah. Yes, man. I still love that stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, you get inspired, even though you've heard it a million times, it still strikes you every time. So So I wanted to move on to the the second record with with A&M and uh, Mm -hmm. huge, huge jump in production. Huge jump in, in in songwriting. Um, if you could talk to us a little bit about this album, because I think this is the, the record that put you guys on the map. Yeah. Well, Anthony, you oh, mentioned yeah. before, you talked about before how it was, you know, the, the progression of the band. Um, I mean, you guys on Wild America, I mean, you introduced horns, you know, Hammond, Oregon, you know, background singers. In fact, you mentioned uh, Jimmy Jamison a while ago. Didn't he do some background vocals on uh, Wild America? He did. He actually sang on all of our stuff, man. He sang on the first record. Oh. Um, he was such a humble guy. He was such a, he was 
such a professional and he was so successful when we were meeting him and he was just the most down to earth dude. He was just super humble. He was really mischievous. He had this sparkle in his eye <laughs> when you were talking to him that he was up to something and he had this kind of little grin on his face that it was just contagious. When you got around him, you just knew you were going to have a good time. But he, you know, he talked to us about being in the industry and stuff. We were so new and just kind of didn't know what was going on. Our heads were spinning. Uh, it was such a crazy experience for us, but he really helped kind of keep us grounded. And, uh, and on Wild America, definitely, he contributed a lot on that. He was he was busy traveling a lot during that first record. I think we had captured him uh, like on Riverside Drive and a couple of those tracks that had um, kind of layered backgrounds and stuff. And he was just amazing in the studio. I mean, this guy, he could sing anything and on top of himself. And, you oh, know, he yeah. was just inspiring to watch. But anyway, um, yeah, man, the second record, this was after we kind of put in our 10,000 hours, man. We had we had really worked really hard on Surprise Attack because the studio experience was so crazy. But then we went on the road and we played, man, for like two years. I'm not kidding. We were so busy on that first record. I, I remember... We were doing like 11 shows in a row, you know, things like that, where we would just play as many nights in a row as we could without just wearing yourself out completely. Yeah, well, there was like and, three, three, know, four we, years in between the album, the debut and the second album, right? So you definitely did a lot yeah, of touring. Yeah, we spent about two years touring on um, Surprise Attack, and then we spent about a year writing. Uh, we were writing the whole time during the Surprise Attack tour. We, t we had some recording equipment we'd set up in studio uh, in the hotel room, some studio stuff, like little four-track recorders and stuff like that, practice amps and all that. And uh, and we came home, but we we really spent time dialing in. We rented a, there was a building, it was right around the corner from Ardent Studios that I was talking about earlier. And it was a jingle studio in the 70s. It was like the biggest jingle studio in the country, I think, at one point in time. But it was a little group of houses. They were all painted pink, so they were our little pink houses. And But they still had the two-inch glass in the Studio A and B room. It had an echo chamber upstairs. It was kind of, just to be totally honest, we, uh, it was kind of dilapidated. But we loved it because we could go in there and just kind of be loud and rowdy and party and everything. We weren't worried about, any, worried about anything. Uh, and it was very close to the studio, so if we needed some equipment, we could like run over to Ardent and say, "Hey, can we borrow a mic cord, or can we, you know, bum the keyboard for a day? We're going to go over here and mess around." So we were piecing together a lot of ideas uh, and really just writing about that first experience of going on the road, man. I mean, once we left Memphis and we saw the skyline of New York, I'm not kidding. Our eyes were like big as saucers. We saw it, and we were like, I'm never going home again. <laughs> we wanted to just leave us out here. We would call the record company and our managers and everybody and just go, we don't want to go home. We want to stay. We just realized it was just such a big world out here, and we hadn't seen anybody. Yeah. Uh, so it was really fun, but we did go home, and we kind of woodshedded. You know, the first record, we probably wrote 60 songs for that record, probably wow. 60 or 70. Um, and the second record was the same way. We would write like kind of batches of songs as we were traveling, and if we went home to Memphis, we would say, "Hey, let's cut like five or six of them," and we would listen and go, "Okay, the best one out of that batch—that's the bar." Now, from now on, everything's got to beat this one. It's got to be this one or better. And uh, we'll talk and, and about uh, talk about you, you talked about um, the writing process and how you wrote so many songs, but you did have some outside input on Wild America, right? You had Stan Lynch, who of course was the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers drummer for many years. Uh, Taylor Rhodes, yeah. who's written some songs with Aerosmith. Um, so you guys had some outside writing on, on for Wild America too, right? We did. And man, we were huge fans of Taylor's because of kicks. We got introduced to kicks during surprise attack tour played about five or six shows with them right before our record came out. And it was right in the middle of Don't Close Your Eyes was exploding for them. And it was on MTV like every, you know, 15 minutes or something. <laughs> I just saw and, Kicks uh, last weekend. They're so great. Oh, Steve they still is still are. incredible. His voice is incredible. He's such a great entertainer. And yep. uh, his voice is in such good shape. I mean, he looks exactly the same. Exactly the uh, same, yep. He was. They were just so nice to us. Uh, we played Hammerjacks. I don't know if you guys remember Hammerjacks, but... Oh um, yeah, of course. Sure. But we played with them. We opened for them there. And after we played with them, just being associated with them, the credibility that came along with that, we were able to go back and play, you know, headline by ourselves at Hammerjacks after we played there with them because uh -huh. they had such a huge crowd. And I actually found him on the Monsters of Rock cruise and got to tell him thank you in person. I said, man, I've been trying for 20 years to find you. I tried to find him at Rocklahoma in 2008, and then <laughs> I found him on the boat finally. And I just said, I just wanted to tell you how much we appreciated those shows because 
you know, that we were from Memphis and we weren't very known in the Northeast at all. It was pretty surprise attack but because we got associated with them we had a built-in audience that they you know they had had quite a, a few records ahead of us so they've been putting in the work and had a, a a big following and we got in front of them and man he was just so humble he said you know what you had to go out and earn it and it it just made me feel really good he was very very humble guy i know that it wasn't that it was because we were associated with him but he yeah. was very nice that way and uh so anyway we knew that um that Taylor had written some songs on the kicks records. And so the record company set us up with him. He was actually here in Nashville. So he was very accessible and easy. And, uh, we were really still green, you know, writing and stuff. So we came up here with him and he ended up writing amnesia and faith healer with us. And then Stan Lynch was also one that the record company set up. And, uh, we just loved Stan, man. The minute that we met him, uh, both he and Taylor both were just so down to earth. They had had tons of experience and had already had a lot of success. And uh, they just taught us a lot about songwriting, man. I mean, I remember being at Stan's house and we just put on some Jimi Hendrix records and laid around the floor and talked about music and what we were inspired by and the things that were going on in our life. And, you know, Stan had kind of been through it already from the ground up. So he gave us a lot of good insight and things to think about. And then just as a craft of songwriting, he introduced us to all kind of, you know, crazy tunings and uh, different instruments that had different kinds of strings on them and like he took the small strings off a of 12 string and put it on acoustic and had this really kind of high-end acoustic thing that we could do while we were writing and strumming together and i remember we were kind of messing around with that when we were doing nowhere to go but down uh and that ended up having a 12 string on it and uh just little things like that just experimenting and being creative and you know just enjoying doing music man we just we couldn't believe it we were like we get paid to do this we're gonna go just hang out <laughs> in the studio all day and write songs and it's just amazing yeah you know? i was gonna say talk about that because you you talked about how wild america was such a you know a big step up for you guys trying different types of songs introducing different types of instruments let's go a little bit ahead of that it's 1994 or not maybe 93 94 at this point and you guys go back in to kind of record what would be revolution day right and i obviously mm-hmm. i mean that didn't come out at that time. It came out many years later. Uh, but talk about that yeah. because I think that album actually took a step forward um, from Wild America, even as far as the, the song style and the type of stuff that you were doing on that. Yeah, and it it did. It it picked up right where Wild America left off. You know, I think the big difference was we just got better on our instruments and stuff between Surprise Attack, um, or at least if we didn't get better, we just got more confident. We were very self conscious and everything at the beginning. But we got comfortable just because we had had time to do it together enough and individually everybody was studying their instrument you know i was thinking about i got away from singing the highest note that i could hit (laughs) on every song between the first record and the second record because it was awesome in the studio but then i realized hey i have to do this every night and i'm like at the peak of my my uh, range or whatever i need to kind of back off and just use that like every once in a while and so I got a little more strategic with that and, and, and melodies and things like that, just from a personal place of trying to grow as a writer and all that kind of stuff. So that transition happened. Also introducing the horns on the second record. Uh, at first we had uh, Jim Price and Bobby Keys from the Rolling Stones wrote the horn sections for some of those songs. And it was really, I'd love for y'all to, <laughs> to hear those outtakes. I, I'm not even sure what that recording is oh, of wow. that. but um, I'd love to hear that. I, yes. I didn't know Bobby Keys yeah. had anything to do with you guys. Yeah, and he was, it was the first time him and Jim Price had been in the studio together in like 20 years since like Bitch, you know, since all that. So anyway, but we realized it was a really beautiful horn arrangement and everything, but we were just like, man, it's too busy. If we do this, we're going to have to take a horn section on the road. And so that's right. how the Memphis Horns showed up, that we just said it. They go, hey, Wayne and Andrew are here. At the time, I think they were on tour with uh, Robert Cray Band and steam they were kind of bouncing between those gigs and so they brought them in and we loved jim price and bobby keys of course but and with the memphis horns we just connected with them because it was much simpler arrangement um and we felt like we had known them the second they walked in our rehearsal place we felt like we had known them our whole life um and they just talked to us about all the people they played with you know from otis redding to elvis to i mean i think they had played on like 300 number one records at that point you know and uh, and Wayne was just like, he goes, hey, man, I'm a guy from Arkansas that's in a cotton field and I play trumpet. You know, I mean, he was just this really down to earth dude. Uh, and we loved him. But we kind of continued that education, I guess, man, into Revolution Day. Because when we talked to 
Wayne and them, we knew about stacks and stuff, but they, we really dug in. I, at least I did. I know I went and got the, you know, the box set of their CDs, everything from 58 to 69 or 68, something like that. And just went crazy. I just dug all in there. You know, that's where the black crows had hard to handle. and That's where that all came from. So anyway, I was back digging around and all that stuff. And, um, uh, you know, Revolution Day was weird, man, because things shifted between the time that our first record came out and the, and the times we were out touring for Wild America. And things were really getting different by the time we were doing uh, Revolution Day sessions. Um, and so we were feeling the pressure. We were kind of, you know, hanging on the ambers of uh, Wild America did fairly well, but it didn't do as good as the first record. So we were kind of feeling that pressure. And a lot of people were saying, you know, hey, man, it's just what's going on in the market. Don't worry about it. Go in. But personally, we were really feeling it with each other. We were just like, man, we got to come up with something awesome. So we went back to Taylor. We went back and dipped with Stan. We brought the horns back. Uh, we invited some of our friends, Stacy Michelle, who now sings with Kid Rock. She was singing in Memphis back then. Uh, and Susan Marshall, who sang with everybody in the world from the Afghan wigs to uh, Skinner and everybody. She was there uh, and we got them to sing on some songs with us. So I don't know, man, it was, that was kind of a dark time uh, for us just to be totally candid. We all, our, our A&R person had had so much success off of extreme and Soundgarden, and we were his third band. And I remember he came in and set us down and he said, Hey man, I got an offer to go to a new record label. And he was going to move from A&M to Interscope. It was just a huge blow to us because he was kind of our voice to the corporate wheel. So during those sessions, the, the revolution day sessions, there was a new A&R person that showed up. That was very nice. And of course, you know, you know, very encouraging and all that. But it was just a different relationship because he wasn't the guy that was there invested from the very beginning. We were kind of feeling that strain a little bit of saying, hey, man, there's a new guy here that's kind of our rep. And it was just really bizarre. I mean, we were super busy. We all during Wild America and Revolution Day, we were traveling and still doing tour dates. Uh, so we were kind of feeling that. And this isn't anything odd. I mean, everybody that's a musician is doing this. But it's just a different it was just a different feeling to us because there were some new players in the field that weren't part of what happened organically at the beginning. And it was kind of changing the formula, I guess, is a way to say it. But we stayed true to ourselves. We tried to say, hey, we want to maintain what we've done on those other records, but we want to do something different creatively. You know, this exciting to us. Uh, so it was challenging because you were saying, you know, we don't want to do something that's going to go away or take away from the people that have been supporting us already, but we don't want to do walking shoes three times in a row on three records, you know? Right. Sure. Um, so it was challenging. And, uh, but we really, really were proud of that record, man. I think the hardest part of that was we worked all the way up until the mastering step. And that's when we found out it was, and if it was going to come out, it was never going to come out. They just mm -hmm. said, we're going to shelve it. So uh. it was a big blow. Cause we had spent about two years. We'd spent a ton of money, you know, uh, recording sessions and, and just time and energy and effort and blood and sweat and tears. And it was a lot of, a lot of things that went into that, but we're still super proud of those songs. Uh, to this day, I still play a bunch of them on my acoustic shows. We, we got a few of them in the set and, um, you know, I don't want it to sound like it was all doom and gloom. We were having a great time while we were doing it. It was just a different experience than at the beginning. I think it just, in hindsight, you know, it's always 2020 when you're looking back, I think everything kind of lined up the way it was supposed to and, but it was hard pill to swallow at the time because, you know, it went from the phone ringing off the wall until I couldn't get people to call me back. And I was like, you know, 24 or 25 years old. Well, that old. was a sign of the times in general. for Yeah, it was pretty scary, yeah. you know. In my opinion, the album was every bit as good as the first two, uh, stylistically a, a little different, which I, I like, to tell you the truth. Yeah, it had I, I'm a, a more big, of a I'm a big blues rock fan. I'm a, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, so... Um, I, I like that sound and it was even more so evident in this album than the first two. So I was a big yeah. fan of this when I finally saw the light of date, which, uh, you could talk a, a little bit about how that actually ended up happening with F F and M, uh, records. Yeah. There, we just got to a point, there were some of the, the demos, you know, we couldn't use any thing that was mastered or sent to A&M or turned into them. That was their property, but there were demo sessions and stuff that we had of, of material and stuff. And we heard it out online. I think it's what was bothering us. Like somebody had, <laughs> had run off a copy, like off a cassette or something. It was out there. I, I actually had yeah. heard some songs of it. Uh, back yeah, in the day we did too. too. Yeah. But we just, we heard it and we were like, man, it's got, it sounds fun, funky. You know, it sounds like it's got static in it. Okay. And we were like, maybe we could just clean it up. You know, maybe we could 
do this on our own is find some of our demo tapes and things like that. You know, it was really kind of therapeutic because this was far away from and far and removed from that time period. This was in, you know, the, the aughts, you know, so about 2010, 2011. We started kind of digging around and talking to each other because there was a huge hiatus, you know, for the band. We kind of all stepped away to just take a break. We've always kind of been family first or whatever it is. We all kind of support each other if somebody needs to step away or if all of us need to step away, whatever. We never really had a big, you know, blowout, I hate your guts, you know, breakup kind of thing. We just said, hey, let's take a break. And (laughs) honestly, when we took a break, I thought I'd see everybody in like a month or six weeks like we always did. You know, we were just going to go rejuvenate ourselves and re you know re-up our power and then i'll see you know it was seven years that we got back on stage together again one of our crew guys had a a health scare he had a an aneurysm and uh, he made a full recovery thank goodness uh but he had a bunch of medical bills and we said hey why don't we get together and we did this fundraiser and we got up and it was amazing it was one of the craziest you know memories of just getting back together in the the energy and the vibe and we were at home and it was a little tiny place like when we started and it was just awesome and the next day the world stopped man 9 11 mm, i woke okay. up to my phone ringing off the wall and people in my voicemail going have you turned your tv on turn your tv on and the first tower was hit you know i remember getting up and turning my television on like the whole world and just said oh my god you know what's going on and so that kind of happened and then it took us until 2008 uh, we went and did uh, a reunion show at home, and we went and did Rocklahoma, and that was kind of where we started kind of getting back to where we would do a few one-offs a year just to kind of see the audience and to see each other and make sure we stayed in touch with each other. But, um, you know, I don't know. The the Revolution Day thing, I definitely had that more of a blues tinge to it, uh, and it definitely had a little bit different vibe, even that some of the outtake stuff in that we had that you know came out later on it was a little bit kind of darker i think and i think that was just normal it was just kind of everything around us was kind of you know swirling around and we were unsure and uncertain and i'm sure that was kind of looming around but we felt really good about the songs like keith's playing was great the riffs he was coming up with the, the concepts for the songs were really cool uh, there's a song in there called Shelter from the Rain that we wrote with um, Taylor Rhodes that I'm still so proud of that song. It was such it was so fun putting it together in uh, that time in the tide song. I still play that every time I play acoustic. I play that one. So it was just an adventure, you know, in a way it was kind of some crazy times. But when I look back on it, it was a really incredible experience. It was, you know, just yeah. the way life is man it throws you these crazy curves sometimes yeah sure well let's move up you talked about how you still play acoustically you know i've been seeing the uh the sunday night uh shows that you do online on facebook and uh is that what you're you're kind of just doing right now where you're kind of waiting for things to kind of get back into uh full force yeah we're just kind of going believe it or not this month is two years of those sessions those sunday sessions i started on thursday night in April, I think it was like a 26 or something. So right around there, it'll be two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I moved it over to Sunday afternoons. I was just like, man, maybe it'll be better if I do this on the weekend or something where we could all just check in on each other for a second. And uh, we've been steady for two years, man. I've recorded every one of them. I still got them. Um, and uh, it's therapy, man. During COVID and stuff, I was missing everybody tremendously. But thank goodness with the technology and resources and stuff we have nowadays, that was a great way for us to all to stay connected and uh you know i got to spend it's not a huge group of people uh but the people that are there it, it kind of means something to all of us you know we just yeah. say hey we need to check on in check in on each other each week just uh, try to encourage each other we're all kind of navigating this really you know bizarre time in history uh but it made us realize that we need each other i think more than anything and just to to celebrate that we're together and we're okay and we're going to make it out of this thing. All right. And, uh, it's going to be what it's going to be. We're not sure what it looks like moving forward, but it's just powerful, man. Music's powerful. Music's healing. Uh, I've always believed that, that it's just a, you know, it's an amazing force, man. Uh, it's magical. It's just touched my life, man. It's just part of who I am. I mean, I, there's, I'm like anybody else. We all have a, a bunch of different facets on us and, and different uh, roles and, and, and uh, responsibilities and all that. But music is the one thing, man, it's been my mainstay. I mean, I can I always go there. It's, it's, it's always been a part of like my 
Yeah. Well, that's why, you know, that's why Tom and I do this. I mean, we started this podcast, uh, what about seven months ago, Tom? And yes. I mean, it's, we're still in the, you know, the early stages, but I mean, we're just, we've known each other for over 20 years and we're just, we're big music fans. And we said, Hey, let's, uh, let's kind of do this and we'll record ourselves and, uh, you know, get it out there and hopefully people like it and appreciate it. Yeah, man. Well, listen, I can't thank y'all enough for having me as a guest. I'd love talking about all these stories. Um, Y'all, you guys, your listeners can look us up at toratoramusic.com. You can find us on any of the social media platforms. Uh, our songs, Trip the Light, Fantastic, and Little Girl Blue are out on all your uh, digital platforms. So on Spotify, on YouTube, every, anywhere that you listen to music, you can find our, our stuff. And um, we're just so thrilled. We can't wait to see everybody. We've got some really good surprises coming up for you guys from our acoustic record to uh, the new single that's coming so we're excited about that. So Excellent. anyway, good stuff. Um, I, you know, we appreciate the, uh, the talk tonight. Stay this in touch with us. Definitely. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you giving me a, a platform and a voice, man, to reach out to people and talk to them and let them know about our band. And I just wish y'all a lot of success with your podcast, man. I hope it goes great. Thanks, Thank Anthony. you. Thank you. Same, same to you, man. Uh, we're looking forward to hearing some new music from you soon. Uh, all right. Well, Hey, Anthony, awesome, thank you so much for talking to us tonight. Uh, Anthony quarter from Torah Torah. Appreciate the talk, and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, you take guys care, take Randy. care of yourself, man. Y'all have a great week, man. I enjoyed it. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Thank you. See you later, man.